You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Okay, I think we'll get started. So hopefully you were in a really riveting session. Um, If you're in this room, I can uh, guarantee you were. Uh, So welcome again back to the... um, the National Climate Emergency Summit. Uh, I'm Michelle Isles. I just want to acknowledge that we are here on Wurundjeri country, um, acknowledge elders past and present and their sovereignty. Uh, today and this afternoon we're talking below zero emissions uh, community. So we had a great discussion here around uh, business and the role of business and of course there is an intersect with community and that's of course where we're seeing um, a lot of the leadership and Communities across Australia are gearing up to rapidly decarbonise. So we have a terrific panel here today and we have a fantastic moderator, another dynamic uh, woman from Beyond Zero Emissions, um, following up our last panel. So I'd just like to um, introduce uh, Dominique Hess. Uh, So Dominique Hess is the principal researcher at Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, She has a terrific resume and those of you that know she's been um, working Uh, in creative and innovative spaces for a long time. She's got a PhD in architecture with further degrees in science, botany and engineering, clean air production. She has a demonstrated history of working in the higher education and building industries in the fields of life cycle assessment, sustainability, regenerative development, systems thinking, placemaking and project management. Um, She's made a big difference um, here in Melbourne and also across the country. Um, And in her current role, she's working with researchers and, of course, that strong volunteer base of BZE to develop pathways to low emission strategies for communities, industries and regions. So I'll hand it over to Dominique uh, to introduce our other speakers. I'll remind you, if you want to tweet um, throughout the session, that it's um, at NCE uh, Summit 2020 and hashtag climate emergency. Thanks, Dominique. Welcome, everyone, and thanks, Michelle. Um, It's a a great privilege to be moderating this session because I think that it is the little steps that are going to get there. Uh, We need to provide that irresistible narrative of the future. We need to provide that hope that we can do something together that we, um, particularly for our children, um, the increase in the kind of fear about the future is similar to the Cold War eras. And um, I think it's really important that Uh, with our councils and with our local communities, we really start to provide that hope of there is a vision and we can work towards it and it might just be a little step and it might feel insignificant, but it's still something you can do to contribute because otherwise we're going to step down, shut down and it'll be finished. So this is such an important conversation and we're so blessed to be joined by this panel who are doing things with community and actually making a difference. Now, we can't have this chat without paying our respects to Mike Hill, who uh, for many of us was a mentor, for many of us took those first steps in this path, enabled PVs, enabled water tanks, enabled uh, bike paths, uh, created the conversations and the networks that have led to many of the organisations that have supported where we are now in Melbourne. So I would just like to pay my respects to Mike um, as we have this wonderful conversation around empowering communities to deal with this climate emergency. So um, our first speaker uh, is uh, the Mayor of Moorland, Lambros Tapinos. Uh, and um, he has taken on that legacy of Mike and is really leading with uh, Moorland City Council uh, on the initiatives 
um, that support community and will share those with us. Thank you. Thank you, Dominique. And I'll also like to um, also welcome and thank my fellow panel members as well here. So um, Alison, Taryn, um, and, and Umitra as well. It's great to be on a panel with all of you today. Uh, Morland is very pleased to be able to um, bring you this session and participate in the Climate Emergency Summit. Um, for those of you who don't know, Moreland City Council is just to the northern suburbs of Melbourne. So we do border on Melbourne City Council and start from Brunswick, Coburg, Pascot Vale, um, and going all the way up to Glenroy, Hadfield, Faulkner, Oak Park and Gowanbrae. So it's an inner city council and uh, certainly sustainability has been at the forefront of its agenda for many, many years. Um, and it's certainly something that our community uh, wants to see and our community is playing a very large role in this movement as well. Um, so I guess uh, we, are, we do consider ourselves a council that leads by example and, and that's very much part of our ethos. Um, I've been a councillor at the City of Moreland now um, for uh, 12 years. Um, I'll, I'll be serving, completing my third uh, four-year term and I began in uh, November 2008. Um, I was actually quite fortunate to um, have the honour of being elected Mayor um, just a few days after my election to council. And at Moreland, we get to give a uh, presentation, a mayor's speech, which outlines the vision for the future. And in my speech in 2008, I spoke about making sure that Moreland was carbon neutral and setting a strong target by 2012. I'm pleased to see that in 2012, or a few months before the completion of 2012, we were able to achieve that goal which for its time was one of only the first or the second council to be able to take that leadership. But of course, leadership at Moreland didn't start in 2008 on climate change. It goes back many, many years before. And I must begin by acknowledging that we are quite lucky in our city to have the series environmental park, and I'm not sure how many um, of you have actually been to series, but if you haven't, I encourage you to, to go along and have a look at all of the good work that they do, um, whether that is um, their sessions around climate change, the support and information they provide to community, the organic nursery, um, um, or in all of the programs, educational programs for, for schools, not just right across Victoria, but um, sometimes right um, schools and people coming from interstate to actually visit series. Um, it was an initiative of the council that goes back to the mid-1980s. Um, so we have a long history in this space. And I do want to acknowledge, as Vanessa did, um, uh, Mike Hill, who was Moreland's first mayor after amalgamations in 97. Um, and uh, Mike's passion for the environment um, was, was a really a leading force for the creation of then the Moreland Energy Foundation, which is now the Australian Energy Foundation and led up by Alison here, who's on our panel. And I'm really interested to, to hear about Alison's presentation as well. And, and this is an organisation that has really helped council deliver on those key strategic goals of becoming carbon neutral um, and going way beyond that as well. Um, I am also the president of the Victorian Local Governance Association, 
um, an organisation that's a peak body for local councils in Victoria. Another organisation started by Mike Hill to champion progressive causes, social justice and the environment, amongst many other local government issues. Um, so our history goes back um, many years, and our legacy um, is, I think, enduring in, in the local government space. Um, and really, if you can take one thing away from um, this session, I want you to think about the leadership, how important leadership is, not just by your elected officials, councillors and councils, but leaders in the community as well. Um, because there are so many community organisations that actually come up to council, work with council, um, and not just advocate, but also spread um, information to those people who want to install solar panels or be more, more sustainable in their lives, but just don't know how to do it. So um, leadership is, is the key theme for everything that we do. Um, but I want to um, talk a little bit about how we became carbon neutral. Um, and we've had a look at our entire organisation. So it's not just about investing in solar panels. Although we've done that with about 440 solar panels on our town hall. Um, but it's also about planning better buildings. So every, um, whether it's the pools or, or libraries or community hubs and community centres, um, we are aiming to make sure that they are, um, receive um, the highest certification for being sustainable buildings and offer um, a, a sustainable. Um, uh, environment um, and, and be a showcase really for what the planning community can do. Um, so over the last couple of years, 100% um, of our electricity use in buildings, um, including street lighting, um, electric cars, um, and, and, and also all of the electricity across the council um, is purchased from Crowlands Wind Farm near Ararat. Um, and we were very pleased to be able to um, partner up um, with the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project, uh, which is led by the City of Melbourne, um, to be able to deliver this project and ensure that that wind farm was able to get off its feet and that we've got a 10-year commitment. Um, we've also had a look at our fleet um, and we've got um, 20 fully electric vehicles in our fleet and we're having a look at how we can get at ensure that our fleet even moves to new technology in the future like hydro, hydro as well. Um, uh, I'm pleased to be able to say that um, we are on track um, to meet a 70% reduction in our emissions um, this year for uh, over the last decade. So if we have a look at our emissions from 2011, um, we're uh, on track to meet a reduction of 70%. Um, but we're not stopping there. Um, we've done well to get our organisation to where it is. Now it's the time for our community to also become carbon neutral. So the next piece of work is Zero Carbon Moreland, which aims at business, residential and everyone in the community being able to decrease their emissions. So whether that is community solar or whether that is moving to electric vehicles, um, we are aiming at transitioning everyone. Waste is a big part of that. I won't go into too much about waste, but 
food organics and recycling and getting the circular economy um, going. That is a big part of this strategy and, and we hope that um, we will be able to achieve um, that outcome as well into the near future. Um, I won't take up too much more of your time, um, but just to, to reiterate again that um, we are one of the leading councils. Uh, we hope to play this leadership role for the local government sector as a whole, um, but we couldn't do it without the support of progressive um, community organisations um, and our residents who help us along the journey. So um, if you live in Moreland or whatever local government area you do live in, um, make sure you are strong advocates for your community um, to the council and to your state and federal parliamentarians as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, and um, that's wonderful that you're taking your lessons out to the community and business, because that is so important. Our next speaker is uh, Taryn Lane. Now, um, Taryn Lane has been described to me as the heart and soul of uh, the Hepburn Wind Project. I know you've had many, many other people to help you on that journey, um, but it's really wonderful to have followed the journey of the Wind Project at Hepburn for the last 10 years and to see how a community's dream could be realised and uh, the impact that it's had on then rippling through the community and enabling more to happen. So thank you so much and welcome. Great. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so I've been lucky enough to take care of our community wind farm for over a decade now, and we've been operating for over eight years. Uh, and our next big project locally is called Hepburn ZNet, which is um, our bottom-up approach to a zero-net emissions transition that we worked on um, last year with our community. And I'd just like to um, thank Sustainability Victoria for their seed funding to help us um, create and innovate and work out a, a bottom-up model that can be replicable and that's open source. And I'd also like to thank my colleagues at Renew who um, led the project uh, and I, I worked under them um, in this case. Uh, and we, we drew together 30 project partners um, to work out uh, our way through how to do this. So that's my place. So Hepburn Shire, we've got 15,000 people. Um, uh, we, we have five sustainability groups in a shire of 15,000 people, which is... Um, a lot. So little towns that have got 2,000 people have their own sustainability group. Um, and it is the first, the place of um, the first community-owned energy generator, which is Hepburn Wind. And we were able to make um, Dalesford Zero Net Energy eight and a half years ago when we were built. And we've always had a long-term goal with our local council to do a community-wide approach. So have two targets, one of Zero Net Energy for the whole Shire and one of Zero Net Emissions. Um, our council has a carbon neutral goal by, by next year, which they are on track to meet. But for us, it's really about this community-wide approach and, and what's it going to take and how do we do it in a, in a science-based way and bring as many from our community along with us. So this gives you a bit of a, a, a baseline of, of the Hepburn Shire. Um, the really interesting thing for us, I mean, we've got high energy and electricity literacy in the Hepburn Shire. If you ask most people if they think 100% renewable is possible, they can you know, talk about the wind farm and go, well, yeah. Um, 
But for us, you know, stationary energy is really only a small piece of the pie and we've got a long way to go to get literate around these other bits which are really big, particularly around transport and particularly about agriculture. And, um, you know, our community is not alone. There's no community across Australia that is um, really agriculture emissions literate and, and, and fighting it in a, in a good way yet. Um, Transport, again, yeah, just a, just a really big one. And, and, and a nice thing for us and an interesting thing for us was the contribution of our local wombat forest and, and what a big offset agent that is. So you can see the minus um, in the land sector there. So it's, you know, it, it, it's provided really good metrics even for our land care groups around um, other values uh, with the forest. So this is a, a bit of a, a very complex mind map about what's it going to take to get there. And to do this, we, we ran a, a very sophisticated 38-sheet options model that basically played out business as usual and, and the cost effectiveness of our transition um, alongside options and had a human-centered design. So we, we went out and tested it in community to find out what was desirable within each local place and made bespoke plans around that. And for us, um, we, we have set the target at, at 2030 so that we stay within the, the IPCC recommended trajectory. So by 2030, we, we want to hit zero net emissions. Um, that means that phase one uh, is, is sort of our quick wins phase, so really focused on things that we're already doing well and, and leading into to more tricky spaces. So particularly um, the agriculture space, we're now starting to lead into projects around the farming community um, we have a seven megawatt uh, solar farm that will be built at the Hepburn Wind Farm site. We run solar bulk buys. We've just done a, a megawatt uh, in the past year with our solar bulk buy. We're just about to do an EV bulk buy, um, free energy audit and retrofit support programs. Um, phase two for us to reach that zero net energy will require a lot more build out of mid-scale renewables. We, we don't have um, capacity on the transmission network around us, so it's got to be mid-scale, so around about the same size as Hepburn Wind. And phase three is really, yeah, that, that bigger focus into ag and, um, and forestry. So we had 31 different technologies and options that we, that we brought to the table. Um, but out of those, we had um, uh, over 90 projects that the community nominated that we put through a kind of design process to work out what was really going to be feasible and viable. And they're what formed our implementation plan, which, of which an extract is, is on the right-hand side. And we've also set up a, a governance group. Um, so we have a roundtable, a ZNet roundtable, that um, has taken charge of this. And that includes council representation, all the sustainability groups, the farming sector, and, and other sectors. It was also really important for our community to have a fair distribution of benefits. So we applied a social justice lens to um, all of our plan to, to make sure that, that uh, we can bring as many people along as possible. I'm going to wrap it up there. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> that was the quickest one-minute warning I've ever had to give to anyone. <laughs> um, inspiring, inspiring to take this catalyst of the wind farm to the next level and show us how to do it, so thank you so much. Um, next is the wonderful Alison Rowe. Um, and I'm so excited of seeing the journey of the Moreland Energy Foundation and where it's going to next, going from inspiring and supporting a local community to actually being able to scale up to do that to the whole of Australia. So very excited to hear about this, Alison. Welcome.
In fact, it's our 20th birthday this year. Um, we started when the electricity sector was privatised in Victoria. Some councils own their local assets. The substation is still on Brunswick Road. If you haven't seen it, it's been recently restored. And uh, we've been around for 20 years. And thank you to the Moreland Council and to Mike Hill. I know we've been talking about numbers today, so I'll give you a few more if I can. At the end of 2019, 1,261 jurisdictions in 25 countries declared a climate emergency. That covers 798 million people, or over 10% of the global population is covered by a jurisdiction that has declared a climate emergency. I think that's pretty fantastic. In November 2019, the Australian Energy Foundation Board approved the resolution for our organisation to become the 253rd non-government organisation to declare a climate emergency. At the board, we unanimously spoke about the key things of what it means to declare a climate emergency. That is, the catastrophic change to climate has been caused by humans. That we, as an organisation, will mobilise and take action at scale and spread that to restore a safe climate. To restore a safe climate, we do not accept business as usual and we have to have a rapid transition to zero emissions. We have the technology solutions, we need leadership and political will. That discussion was completely aligned to our vision. Our vision at the Australian Energy Foundation is an equitable zero carbon society. And we know our role is to accelerate the transition and empower communities to take action. I'd like to understand how many people work for council in the audience. Okay, so probably about 30%, I think, are in the room. We work with about 25 councils at the moment across Australia. And we know that a lot of councils, I think I've heard 88 to this morning, have declared a climate emergency. I guess what I'd like to talk about now is what do you do after you declare? What does it mean to develop a climate emergency action plan? So I'm going to talk through a little bit through that. The first thing we think in your climate emergency action plan is you need to have five continuous steps. You actually have to understand where you are. You have to define where you want to be. You need to design the plan. You need to deliver it and you need to evaluate. The first thing to do when you're starting to develop the Climate Emergency Action Plan is to reach out to the community. You actually have to engage the community in the conversation at the start. It's not about developing a plan and putting it out for consultation and expecting that's what the community wants. When we worked with Moreland on the 2040 strategy for Moreland, uh, which is community emissions as well as net zero, one of the first things we did, which is really similar to what Taryn was talking about, was set up a brains trust. That brain trust was about the people who are going to provide the solutions to get to zero net emissions by 2040. So we had ACOM, we had Arup, we had all these different industry players, we had council, we had community reps, uh, all within the room helping design what the vision was going to be for Moreland for 2040. Then we set the boundaries. We said, what are the boundaries of the scope that we want for our, our climate emergency action plan or strategy? Will it just include council missions or will it include the community missions? What are the local resources that we have that are our complete assets? And what are the risks that we face in our area versus our other areas? Some local governments like Moreland, ACT Government and Northern Beaches have taken a leadership position on setting zero emissions targets for the community before 2050. 
We heard from Shane Rattenbury earlier uh, about the importance of interim targets. Those are the three councils that have got the interim targets and the plan sorted out rather than just a long-term goal. I also do want to acknowledge that Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney have set community-wide zero emission targets by 2050. They have not got the plan with the interim targets yet. So when, I guess, you're doing the next step, which is developing the baseline, uh, it's not just about developing a baseline of greenhouse gas emissions. That's the easy thing to do. It is really about saying what is the emissions profile in our area, and Taryn spoke about agriculture. And one that we haven't spoken about enough is health. So if we think about what baselines we're developing, we go to easy things, transport, we haven't spoken about health. You actually need to develop a health baseline. When you co-design the, uh, the Climate Emergency Action Plan with the community, it is really about creating a vision for the community. So that's the next step. What is that vision? And where uh, are you going to be in terms of a leadership position? So Climate Works did a great piece of work mapping all of the local councils with their emissions. Uh, where do you want to be and, and when do you want to be there by? What will be the goals, what will be the activities and what will be the delivery plan needs to be spelled out at the front. What are the risks facing the community? Is it the heat island effect? Is it storm surges? Is it the fact that people won't be able to afford to have mortgages because their properties will be uninsurable? What are the actual elements of your local plan going to include? What do you need to prioritise? What are the targets and who do you need to engage to deliver those? Then it's about an integrated approach to delivery. It is not just a team in one area of the organisation that delivers the plan. It has to be across the whole community. Uh, how will you appoint a board? Taryn has spoken about appointing a board. We would suggest that every council should appoint an independent climate emergency action plan board that governs the plan, that holds the community to account to deliver, and then there's an annual review process. So that's the last step in evaluating that plan. Uh, you would review that as a community group, as the board, and say, are we on track? If we're not, what do we need to do? And how are we going to change to accelerate the scale? So that would be our recommended approach of how we go about developing a climate emergency action plan. And I wanted to get a little bit more practical today to say this is what we need to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's so good to have those practical steps. Um, I noticed that we have uh, Fiona from Kaha here. So there's a great organisation where you can get data on health and climate change, Kaha, acronym C-A-H-A, online. It's a not-for-profit. Um, also, Beyond Zero Emissions has a um, carbon scorecard that you can go to and get the impact on um, your emissions or what your emissions are within your municipalities. You just stick in your postcode and you'll get um, the breakdown of emissions. So that might be useful to get that baseline um, that Alison mentioned. But finally, moving out of Victoria and to New South Wales, um, we have Amanitra Mirti, who um, is part of the strategic planning part of Central Coast Council, the third largest council in New South Wales. Um, I was quickly reading her profile. I was being naughty checking on my phone there so that I could tell you a little bit about her because she's one of the people I don't know personally. Um, but some words jumped out for me. Um, resilience, working with traditional owners, uh, working with community um, to enable uh, thriving within the community um, in a sustainable way. So uh, wonderful and thank you for coming to speak to us.
Firstly, I'd like to uh, thank my fellow uh, speakers today and uh, express my gratitude for their wonderful work and um, brilliant lessons to be learned. Um, and secondly, yes, I am a climate advocate and work for local government, but I also am an advocate for health. And I work for, um, as a member of CAHA, and Fiona is here amongst us today. Um, when it comes to demonstrating evidence of climate change, I think Central Coast Council would probably win an award uh, if I was to demonstrate all the pictures today of what we have been experiencing. We started um, our journey late last year with declaring our entire LGA as drought-stricken to being waking up every morning uh, covered in smoke and uh, the Gospers Mountain becoming the largest ever bushfire in the history of Australia. Uh, and now we are uh, currently flooded. So we have the best of both worlds. But it's not all loom and doom and gloom um, for our region. It is a beautiful um, regional council in the middle of, uh, in between Sydney and Newcastle, 60 kilometers away from Sydney, a beautiful tourist destination. But yes, we are not, um, we, we can't escape the climate change issues on our coast. It's either flooding or it's either bushfires that we're suffering from. But when you put it in context, yes, we, have a, we are a large regional council, same size as ACT. Um, we have an aging population and we are fast growing. We have a population of 340,000 people and growing to another 75 in the next 12 to 15 years time frame. So yes, whilst we're dealing with this changing weather, we also have to deal with the growth and other driving factors. Um, we have a high percentage of socioeconomic population that we have to be mindful because climate resilience is not about excluding the population and how they, how they can be on the, um, um, dealing with this change. Um, this is our bushfire vulnerability. The yellow bit is basically the lakes. The entire region is um, vulnerable to bushfires. And whilst we are a beautiful region with um, beaches and mountains and ridges, we have the highest percentage of home at risk to bushfires. This is my heat island map only for the last um, 18, 2018, which demonstrates, yes, we are going through urbanization, fast population growth, fast change in terms of built environment, and a four degree change in temperature uh, in our urban centers. That is significant. When you put into perspective, what does it really mean? But local community don't understand these impacts. They don't really understand what's happening when you say four degree change in temperature in your local government area. This is my um, flood map. So most of the blue area is literally where the community is. The rest is mainly either um, state forest or national parks. But the entire LGA is subject to flood, um, uh, flood impacts, whether today or in the next decade or so, when, it, the, when the tidal impact comes in. So this is what I'm dealing with in the Central Coast region, um, and it, it putting it into context to the community, it's significant. So we started our journey with the um, so council form, Central Coast formed when we merged in 2016, uh, former Wyong and um, Gosford City Council merged to become the, one of the largest regional council. Um, we adopted our first climate change policy in July 8th in 2019, last year. A month later, we declared the climate emergency declaration, and I have, and the, it was really driven by the community as much as the management and our councillors were involved. Um, since the declaration of the climate emergency, we started uh, working with the community because who are we building the resilience for? It has to be with the people, 
by the people and for the people. So any climate action, whether it's um, national, state or local, it really has to be involving and like Alison said, with the people because this is who they need to become resilient to the changing circumstances. So um, we have undertaken massive um, data uh, gathering of data such as data is powerful, data provides the insights to decision making. We undertook um, risk assessment, vulnerability data, heat island, all the different types of data sets that we needed to understand our current status quo and the future projections. What do we plan for? We're a local government. We have to provide the insights and know-how and inform the way we plan for the future region as whilst we're growing and changing. Hence, we undertook a massive um, uh, data gathering effort in the last three years, and now we are ready in launching our biggest ever climate action program. We're having a place-based approach to um, develop the climate action plan for the region. Whilst we may be way behind a number of the councils that are already so far ahead in this space, but because we are a regional managed council, it makes a difference for us to start from where we started. Now, what does the climate emergency mean for Central Coast Council? With a population of uh, 340 population in comparison to other councils, 3.7 kilotons of CO2, which means in the next 16.5 years, I'll bust my budget if I don't change my actions today. Which means if I was to make some difference in our local government LGA, I need to remove 26,500 cars annually. That's the emergency we are dealing with. That's the scale of emergency we're dealing with. How do you have this conversation? Local councils' um, energy emissions is only 8% of the entire LGA. This is the scale that we, that's why it's a shared responsibility and that's why we have to work with the community to make the difference because it's, it's really, the entire community needs to come together and that's why it's such an urgent agenda. So the climate action planning, if I could put it in perspective, I suppose one of the um, uh, local, the 17 local planning districts, one local planning district is probably bigger than Sydney's uh, Metro Council. That's the scale of size of Central Coast. We're doing 17 community workshops, very place-based, going into the community and working with them. We're doing five sectoral workshops, health, agriculture, built environment, um, manufacturing, retail and tourism. And we're doing five community workshop, um, schools workshops um, with all our different schools. So this is the scale of work, um, climate action program we are launching on the 25th of February and you are all welcome to be part of that. Um, what does that mean in terms of the um, action planning? Basically we want to have the conversation with the community, how can you mitigate, how can you be part of the solution and what does adaptation look like? Because people don't understand, a lot of people are still trying to put three meals on their table. What climate action is and what net zero emissions is meaningless, meaningless to a community. So that's why you have to work with the community because this is, they are who you're working for, who you serve. So thank you very much. Thank you. So um, we're going into the uh, questions part now. I have uh, three quick questions that we'll all have a reflection on and I have warned the panel and then uh, think of your own questions. But if you ask a question, it's the single sentence that goes up at the end. Um, it's okay to say your name, that's fine, but no more context, okay? One sentence goes up at the end um, so that we can have as many of us ask the questions that we would like. 
So some of you have already spoken to this, but I'm really interested in a very quick answer to how are you empowering your communities uh, to deal with this climate emergency? Um, well, I've written to every CEO of every council in Australia who's declared a climate emergency and offered to help. Um, we've developed a brochure and a guide that can help you develop your climate emergency action plan, uh, and that's what I'm doing. So I will continue as I watch every government, our local government declare. I will write them a letter and offer to come and have a conversation and help them start. So that's what I'm doing. So there you go, all your councils out there. Here's the, Alison's the person. Um, in our community, it was about as many opportunities to participate and provide um, yeah, ideas, solutions, and for us to then work with all of that data and all of that feedback so that it is really a community-owned plan and it's come from the community. Um, and then on an ongoing basis, making sure that we're delivering programs that people have asked for and that they're excited about and that they'll, they'll plug into and, and, and participate with. That feedback loop is so important. Uh, for us, it really is about declaring a climate emergency and um, saying to the community that the time for action is now. Um, and that means getting our businesses, our residents, um, all on board. The information is there, um, and, uh, and Alison's team does a great work and, and helps organisations with that. Um, what we need is the political will but we also need the individual will from business owners, um, residents, and everyone in the community to say, we are going to put money aside in our budget, we're going to invest in this because um, we don't have a second planet. Um, it's already too late. We need climate action now. And for council to be declaring an emergency and pushing that message um, really helps the community get on board. Thank you. Um, as I said, um, Central Coast Council is launching this massive comprehensive program to work with the community. Um, it is about giving the power of decision making to the community. Simple as that. I guess it's, it's really making them part of the decision making, involving them. And the bottom line is we're also um, using a very smart technology to provide that know-how. What are, what are we dealing with? We're presenting the information. It's about accountability as well. What are we accountable for as a local government and what is your responsibility as a community? Yep. I might just add in one more point. I think the reason why Hepburn ZNet is being so successful in our community is because it's a, a total partnership between community groups and council. And if that doesn't happen, we can't do it as fast as we need to do it. So, you know, really it, the onus is on community groups to get active, but also for councils to come to the table. Yeah. That listening so important because um, for the two-thirds of you that aren't part of councils, you've all got great ideas. And often councils want you to come and talk to them and help them with those ideas. So it's, it's on all of us to be part of this solution. So I, I had a second question, but I think we've kind of covered it. So I'll just skip to my last question, because I'm really interested in what are you personally doing uh, as far as this climate emergency goes? It's like it's coming to me. Um, yeah, thank you for giving me a heads up about that. So um, I've changed my language. So, you know, um, I think perhaps I was a little bit scared that maybe I'd offend someone if I spoke to too loudly about a climate emergency and perhaps I shouldn't say it in this forum or perhaps I shouldn't say that. So I'm going to say it every single day uh, and that's my commitment that I've made. So I am speaking with much more urgency. I'm being vulnerable um, about that and I think that's really important. Um, I've been really vulnerable with my team about you know, how I feel about that, 
been vulnerable with the board. Um, I'm really personally connecting into this and um, I'm not shying away and I'm proud to talk about the climate emergency every single day. I'm working hard to give our two turbines some little solar panel friends out there on, on the paddock uh, and continuing to lead the Hepburn Sednet program in my community with our community governance group. Um, on a personal level, I live out in the bush, I've got solar, composting toilet. I really want to get one of the EVs as part of our EV bulk buy, but I'm just going to have to talk to the board about maybe a salary sacrifice option or something <laughs> with that, like that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, as a mayor, you get to um, visit a lot of community groups um, in your in your day-to-day -day activities, um, and speak to a lot of residents as well. So it's at every speech, at every opportunity, at every visit, being able to say that um, we need to take action on climate, and introducing them to the services we have, um, and where they can get help to make that change but encouraging people to do so. Um, and, and that's a big part of my job uh, this year as the mayor, is to put it at the forefront of when I go to, whether it's the seniors groups, or whether it's sporting clubs, or whichever group it is, to also talk about um, why we've declared a climate emergency, why it's important to take action, and what can you do? Uh, whether that's uh, transitioning out of your cars and onto more sustainable transport, whether that's increasing in a recycling, um, if that's available, um, but more importantly, it is about um, spreading the message um, and spreading it to people who don't often hear about climate change or don't put it at the top of the agenda. It's getting to those hard-to-reach audiences and sometimes you've got to change the language. Um, you've got to show the opportunity, especially with the business um, community, to say um, what is the opportunity of investing in renewables um, and, and being able to get them to look at things differently to solve the problems. Well, firstly, as a mom, I'm grooming two little young leaders, um, making them future leaders and leading this agenda of climate action. Um, personally, uh, uh, and as a um, professionally, I guess I'm not just working within council to make the difference. Uh, my team started with two or three staff, and now I've got a massive team of people, which are constant, all of them are advocating and doing such brilliant projects and initiatives. Um, uh, uh, and also I advocate with a lot of research institutes, working in partnership with them to facilitate a lot of research work that we need. There's massive gaps still. We still don't understand a lot of things that need to be um, guide our thinking and our future planning. Um, and also initiating a number of PhDs. I've already started four PhDs in the last two years. So these... these on your own, or have you got on four my people? Own. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, two, um, no, I'd like to do another one, but yeah, no, um, busy mom. Um, but there are four of my um, students that are doing it. Also, I do lecturing at University of New South Wales and at, do climate resilience planning in one of their programs. So yes, I'm a busy woman, but I love it. This is who I am, and I can't stop doing this. So um, MC's prerogative, I'll tell you two quick stories, which is um, how do I talk to my 11-year-old about the climate emergency? She says, don't talk to me about fires, don't talk to me about climate change, it's scary. Um, so I tell her, and this is the second story, um, we've been working with Collie where it was a coal-fired town, a coal mining town um, with a whole bunch of um, 
power stations for Western Australia, and we're helping them transition from 12,000 um, fossil fuel jobs to 1,700 uh, clean, um, renewable manufacturing jobs. Not asking them to become baristas, but actually giving them skills for skills jobs, jobs that will help them to continue to thrive in their communities. Um, she needs the positive stories of what people are doing rather than the, the, the scariness of the emergency. So do please listen to those that you're speaking to and speak to where they can feel empowered to be a part of this journey. Um, yes, it is an emergency. I feel that it is an emergency. I'm as emotional as you are about it. Um, but some of our vulnerable people out there can't hear that. They need to know what they can do. And so we talk about cycling to school and, and doing things at home, recycling and so forth. So speak to the level of the person that you're with. All right, so now over to you for some really questions. Remember, one sentence goes up at the end. Thank you. Just to quickly, um, do you calculate um, the, the carbon coming into uh, generation of the concrete and the other building materials when you make your calculations on um, what your current situation is in terms of the level of emissions? See you later. So um, the um, BZD calculator is based on the economic activity within your region, and so if there's construction within that economic activity, it aggregates that. Uh, embodied energy is a critical thing that we need to think about, and um, BZD did a report on um, net zero cement, um, which shows how we could transition that industry to actually starting to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere over 10 years, uh, and Transurban is working with us on actually implementing that, so it's happening, but embodied energy is critical. Um, we need to not just recycle, we need to just keep using things and having things that last a long time, um, but they are part of the calculations. Anyone else want to answer? Just to say, the, um, the concept of the circular economy is really yes. important these days as well. So spreading that message to the business community and saying, look at opportunities of how you could recycle more and reuse products. Um, and, and I think that's where um, the new trend is going to go as well. Um, and uh, you'll find that a lot of those um, high carbon polluting materials are no longer used. And, and thinking about um, manufacturing precincts where the waste of one becomes the resource of the next and, and that saves money, creates more jobs, makes everything cleaner and um, is better for the environment. There are some questions along here. And then we'll go up the back. And then we'll go up the side. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, just a question about the scope and narrative of your different plans. Would um, it be okay just to speak to the different messaging, climate emergency, zero carbon, uh, community transition, and what that means? Uh, for me, it's now the Climate Emergency Action Plan is what we all need. So um, I guess I'm really keen to make sure we don't, as I said, dress up an old plan and just give it that name. Um, but that's, that's certainly what we're doing. If you do declare a climate emergency, you do have a responsibility to develop a Climate Emergency Action Plan. Uh, so that's certainly the language that, that we're using. Um, the first ZNet uh, occurred up in Urala in New South Wales, but it was zero net uh, energy. So it, it only included um, stationary heat and electricity, so no transport or the other emissions. And we took that starting point and then transformed it into the full emissions package and, and called it zero net emission transition. 
Um, now where we're looking at going, as, as Jody knows, is towards adaptation uh, and circular economy and adding that, that into our full model. And I don't know what it'll be called then, but um, yeah, I think for us in the Hepburn Shire Z Networks for now, um, and people are really connecting to that as a shared brand. You can see our, our banners here, so we call it a zero carbon moorland. Um, so it's about continuing to do the organisational things, but also focusing now on the community because that's where we've got to make the major inroads. Um, the strategy is very detailed. The language uh, depends on the audience in many ways. So we emphasise the climate emergency and the urgency to act, but we also emphasise uh, the opportunities that are gained by investing in renewables. So it really does depend on the audience, um, but we do make sure that we are always pushing effectively the same message, and that is the time is now. Um, invest in renewables, the time is now. Um, uh, make some, some action at home or some action in your business um, to reduce your carbon footprint. As a newly formed council, I think the best approach for us was to really have a um, solid leadership direction from um, council, which was to develop a climate change policy. The policy provided this um, agenda of net zero emissions for us. So in that policy, we not only just aligned that thinking with the state government, but also we developed 19 commitment statements, which were very holistic and covered all areas of um, mitigation and adaptation. The next step with the um, uh, declaration came a specific task to transition that to actually take it to the next level. And the action planning is really about how do we actually make that happen. So that's how we change the language around. It's not really dram dramatically, but really just putting a high level net zero emissions 2050 target and going into the transitioning focus that yes, we need to transition now and then moving into what are these actions and how do we actually prioritize these actions. Hi. Um, as a lifelong Moorlander, I've really struggled in the last couple of years because I've felt like it's really become us and them, whether it's about waste, whether it's about transport. It's, it, it's really hurt me, to be honest. I just wonder what you think, how, you know, how do we get the people on board who aren't in this room and aren't on board? How do we win hearts and minds? Do we need to change our approach? Do we need to change our language? Yes, um, yes we do. Um, because uh, in, in many ways uh, there are those people who are still sceptical about it, but there are, that's a decreasing number. People are coming on board and starting to at least understand that they do need to make some change. So where the most emissions can be cut, where the most good work could be done, is, is getting into those um, audiences that are, don't always talk about um, the climate emergency and the need um, for climate efficiency and have other concerns as well, whether they're economic concerns. Um, so we need to make sure that we are adapting the language and we are bringing them along with us. And there are certain projects that we can do together, um, but sometimes we might need to be able to, um, you know, we always talk about think global and act local, but talk to them exactly what does that mean for you? Um, if we are seeing increased weather patterns, um, if we don't have, uh, um, what does it mean for you if you can't get around in your vehicle because there's congestion, because we're seeing so many more people? Um, so simplifying the language um, and introducing it in a way that impacts on them directly in their day-to-day -day lives is the way to get people on board, I find. And I think I'd like to resonate on that. Yes, um, 
when it comes to community, it power, the power lies in the information. If you're able to share the right information and have that conversation around what this actually means to their livelihood, then it makes a huge difference. And you've touched on the very critical point that, yes, we still have a lot of community people who don't understand. Last year when I was doing the climate change policy, I was actually getting security to go with me because I was nervous that, yeah, there will be a lot of backlash. The community is not ready to talk about climate change. but. It's, it's not about climate change is becoming a dirty word. No one wants to hear it. And you're changing the terminology to climate resilience or climate restoration. Nothing will change. The reality is that you have to have this conversation with your community now and provide the right information to the people because people want to know. People want to be part of the decision making. People want to be involved in that. If you work with the community, community will work with you and partner with you to make the difference, to make the change. So um, we're working with the hunter, um, and uh, it was going to be yeah, transitioning to a renewable superpower kind of type of language. And by listening to the community, they said, "Look, transition's scary for us. Um, you know, we'd like to diversify. We're sick of being tied to coal. Um, we'd like to diversify, but transition." means that we're going to change and we don't want to change. We want to continue to thrive in our lives. So it is about adapting that language. I feel the urgency and the pain of wanting people to just see how this is, but people are busy with their own lives and their own priorities, and, it, and it, sometimes we have to scaffold them to help them feel that they can do something, even if it's just a little bit, so that they can start on the journey. And there always will be people who don't want to know because it's too frightening. Sorry, we've got a question up the back here, another one over here, and then we'll come to you. Sorry, just a quick one. Thank you so much for so many amazing uh, presentations. Just a quick question regarding uh, the targets for the community. I was wondering, are these voluntary or mandatory, and what would it take to make them mandatory? What incentives would be in place? Well, can I start? State government, New South Wales, set this target for net zero emissions 2050. That's not mandatory. I mean, it's state government direction, but we, it's what, and then we uh, aligned that thinking at the local government level and saying the same net zero emissions 2050. But really, only thing you can control is what the council itself is doing, not the community. Community, you can advocate and make, uh, make them aware that they can be part of the solution. So to mandate emissions reduction is a difficult conversation. You can't actually mandate that. You really have to bring everyone on board, and that's why I keep repeating myself that people need to understand what this means to them. When, it, when, it, when you're really struggling to put food on the table, to put a solar panel worth another $5,000, getting cheaper now, but even then, it's a difficult conversation to have. So it is driving that um, uh, agenda, driving that uh, passion in the community to, to make that difference. Um, for us, we're a very small shire in a regional area that has a very small population, and it's not mandatory, of course, but I guess our, our thinking is, is not about, yeah, making it mandatory. It's more about our responsibility as a community that's got a lot of leadership already and has the ability to get there faster than most, that we should, as a lighthouse community, pioneer in that space, get there as quickly as we can, attract as many resources as we can to that, and from there be able to, you know, show other communities what we've been able to achieve. So um, that, that was our direction, our mandate. It's more about taking responsibility for what we're actually capable of. 
So, yes, um, mandatory is a scary word sometimes as well. It's one of those words that we like to, to avoid in a sense because people might say, what happens if we don't meet that target? And what you actually do need is to bring people along and to provide them with confidence. Um, so, um, of course, they're not mandatory. But um, it is a guide. It is a guide for our future investments into programs, whether that's educational or into capital investment into renewables. Um, and it's a, a guide into us providing an ability for our community to also participate um, in those programs and, and, and to make that transition. Um, so, um, no, we don't say it's mandatory, but uh, we, we, we put it at a very in a very serious light. And I can, um, as I mentioned in my speech, the commitment I gave in 2008, by 2012, um, we, we reached that commitment. Um, our, our energy reduction has decreased by 70%. We are meeting those targets, but it's about um, getting people on board to begin with. Um, and it, then it's about making sure that that investment, whether it's in people or in, or in capital infrastructure, um, is made at budget time. Um, and, and we often look and say, are we meeting our targets when we're developing programs which might be carbon intensive or when we're proposing our budget? So uh, we take them very serious. For us, it's not mandatory, but it may as well be. If I can just add in helping develop the Zero Carbon Moreland uh, plant with, with Moreland City Council, um, there was a long debate about, you know, how can we set a target for the community by 2040 and uh, how can we achieve that? So I think that was behind the thinking of actually when we, de we designed the plan with, with Moreland was to bring the people who would have the solutions into the room. So not everything within a local government can be controlled around community emissions. Local government can't control what happens to the trains. You know, they can control what happens to the streets. So, so that was the thinking around that. But there has been a community-wide emissions profile done and there is different targets for the community within Moreland. And that was, that was a key part of the 2040 strategy. So they're a goal and they're measured and uh, they're acted upon. I'm just going to, um, again, MC's prerogative, quickly add um, that uh, sometimes um, the words mandatory and so forth uh, get in the way. You know, what are you making us do? And, and that might be that you're not quite hitting, hitting the residence, resonance of the community. They're not hearing something that inspires them. So I had that with a recent community. They didn't even want to put solar panels on their roofs. They didn't want to be seen to be supporting renewables. And now they have a plan to be energy positive. Like, they're going to not just reduce their carbon emissions to zero, they're actually going to start taking carbon away from it because in 12 months we've taken them in a journey from being seeing themselves as a fossil fuel community to seeing themselves as a, a community that contributes positively to their region and actually starts sucking CO2 back out of the air. And it's just in finding the right button, and for that community, it wasn't about setting a target, it's about saying, okay, what would it look like for you guys to actually start being positive? Um, actually taking emissions out of the air. So there's now a whole forest strategy, a CLT strategy, a um, positive carbon uh, concrete strategy um, that's going to take up all of their coal mining and fossil fuel jobs. Um, and it's, it's sometimes the target can be a... And it's, again, just listening to where your community's at and what they need to be inspired to get, go on this journey. So, question over here. Thanks, Dominic. Um, David Hood, um, I guess, a climate action rebel, amongst other things. Um, we worked very closely with the Noosa Shire Council and Mayor uh, Tony Wellington eventually, despite there being re wealthy retirees in the Noosa Shire, they got 
to announce a climate emergency that got through council. We then thought with that success we could go to Brisbane City Council. Brisbane City Council is the largest area in the world and about two million people. They voted on it after a lot of effort by us, and we think 72, 78 per cent of the population of Brisbane wanted climate action. Question. They voted on party lines and it got lost. What can we do? We're going back, there's a council election coming up and we're going to go back. I need advice on how we can ramp up to beat this party line sort of thing. Yeah, it, I mean, taking action on climate is not a left-wing issue or a right-wing issue. Um, it's got to be seen as, as a key um, element for every political party's platform. Um, I guess the biggest concern is sometimes when these issues are politicised and people vote on party lines or, or take a negative approach. Um, and unfortunately, I feel well, that's what's happening global. Well, that's what's happening in Australia, and that's why we're having this complete inaction by our federal government. How do we start addressing that and saying it's not a left-right issue, but it really is a, a critical issue that we must all be addressing, all political parties. Um, and that's why sometimes the language we use, but the people, the champions, the advocates in the community need to be involved in all political parties. Um, and, and we need those people to champion um, these reforms um, and these targets and these emissions and just action on climate. And we need that in every political party, in every community group, in every council, um, and right across all organisations. David, I think it's... Um it's a couple of things. So I've just come back from Tasmania this week where I was speaking to a council who um, they did put up a, a climate emergency and it got knocked down and um, the council didn't work with the staff beforehand. So that was the key reason why that didn't go through. Um, so they said, what can we do now, Alison? And I said, well, <coughs> maybe you need to get um, the, the staff and the councillors in a room and have a workshop about it and create a vision. Uh, together, um, so I think that's the most important thing: is that, that you know the, the management, the officers, and the, and the councillors need to create opportunities to work on something together. So I've offered to go back for free and and, and spend some time with them on that. Um, I, I do think it's about empowering the community groups. So I'd, I'd I'd like to acknowledge if anyone's in the room from the Bayside Climate Crisis uh, Action Group. Is anyone here? Uh, wonderful. So um, they were so active in Bayside uh, and, and getting the climate emergency over the line and I, I, I also wrote to the Bayside Climate Group as well to congratulate them on that. Uh, and again, I, you, you should be receiving another letter this week offering to come and do some free work with you to support you in the community. So you, you, it really is about um, not someone coming in and doing something and you know, telling them what to do. It is about empowering the community groups so um, we've got a long history of working with Climate Action Moreland. Um, the first thing I said to the, the CEO down in Tasmania is that I want to work with your community group. Um, that's got to come through there, not through me. So um, I would suggest it's, it's working with those types of groups. City, City Smart up in Brisbane is the key people which um, we're talking to again. We've been up there and we're working with them. That's the way to get there. Um, for the Hepburn Shire, because they, we already have a plan and they feel like they've, you know, signed so many declarations, take two, this and that. The councillors were really reluctant because they were like, we're already doing it, we're past that point. And um, for, the, for the community though, it was really important to be part of the climate emergency movement. So the ZNet um, governance group, we wrote to them collectively and said, no, actually we, 
it's really important that you do this and you can't just do it on a vote, it has to be unanimous, otherwise that is going to send the wrong signal to our community that there isn't you know, unity here around what we're doing. And they did pass it and they did vote unanimously. Um, but I think a really good example um, of a council um, that had to deal with a bit of discord is our, our neighbouring shire, so Jodie's here from Mount Alexander, and um, she created a, a, a community forum where all different sectors and community experts and representatives and all the sustainability groups got to talk over a whole day and night to their, their local representatives, um, and basically that it had gone to a vote. They said, uh, we need more information. The community forum was organised um, with, with those important stakeholders like the hospitals and, and things, and when it went to the vote, it was passed. So, yeah, hearing from those representatives and having those important sector reps there is, um, is the key, I think. So we've got five more minutes. I've already agreed to these questions here. So you'll pass? Okay, the gentleman... Um, there with the glasses and the hand up and then we'll come back to you um, and I think I saw one up the back which I've missed last three questions okay because we've got five minutes keep it short um, if I could ask just one or two panel members to answer so we can get through the three questions uh, first of all thank you for your your hard and, and intensive work um, as, a, as a council um, my question is clear um, as we see in below zero emissions uh, it's not um, it hasn't been taken, uh, it hasn't been welcomed enough uh, within the community. And as uh, councils uh, set up a, a zero emission, uh, I think, I personally think, or my understanding is that that's uh, not an end line and it needs to be an extra effort and, and work towards um, sequestering more carbon dioxide and reverting those, those uh, damages that has already been done to the environment. So, I mean, there is uh, amazing projects that, that can be uh, addressed and, 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 and the approach of the councils uh, having a power, political power. Um, my, 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 my concern is the current uh, economic system that is not helping and forcing uh, the community to be uh, into consumerism and uh, producing more carbon dioxide. So w what's the council doing just to revert and sequester more, more carbon, uh, just to level up for the other part of the community that's not doing? So if I can summarise the question into um, there are factors that are pushing up carbon outputs, which is consumerism, um, and secondly, what can we start doing to actually start um, drawing down the CO2? So two questions. Um, on consumerism, I mean, technology is changing and improving as well. So manufacturers of TV, like TV today, um, uses less electricity than, than five or 10 or 20 years ago, right? So, um, so we do need to encourage industry um, to become more efficient um, and to put environmental measures in their efficiencies. Um, so um, it's difficult to say to people, you know, don't turn your air conditioner, don't watch TV. I mean, that's just not going to be the reality. How do we make these uh, more en energy efficient um, is, is one aspect. And, and, and the other aspect is how do we encourage um, people to, um, uh, to invest in, in, in green energy, to, to pay the extra bit and, and, and purchase green energy for what electricity they need to use. Um, but uh, it, it, it's not an easy conversation to have because of our lifestyles. Um, but we need to start addressing that as well. Um, and we need to use different language to do so. 
So um, just given that we have now two minutes left, um, is it a very quick question? Yeah. Okay. And a very quick mic. Yeah. Uh, so Australia build second largest houses in the world. Uh, just wondering what councils are doing to reduce energy in housing, like working with the housing industry, all the people that are doing knockdown rebuild, losing backyards and yep, trees. Yep, yep. I was hoping not to take the next <laughs> question, but I will because it's probably the only one. But that, that's all right. We can, we can uh, ask um, Central Coast first. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. What's council doing? I guess we have got this minimum basics um, that you know you comply with when it comes to you putting your DA applications in. But beyond that, I guess we are uh, trying to build, uh, we're currently writing a sustainability strategy and advocating for green buildings. So that beyond that, I think council's role is to really provide those instruments that facilitate development, future development to be in line with that thinking as well. I've got a good one for you. Do you know that for every square you add to your house, it adds one to $400 a year in costs? That's how I'm talking to people who want bigger houses. Okay, that's an extra 10. That, do you realise that's $1,000 to $4,000 a year you're adding to the cost of your house every year? It's between, for every square metre, $100 to $400 a year that you're adding to the cost of your house. That's cleaning, maintenance, energy consumption, materials. Uh, and so forth. Um, and that's a simple message that people think, oh, I'll increase my resale value by adding two more bedrooms and three more bathrooms. No, this is the day-to-day -day costs you're impacting by that. So about seven or eighty years ago at Moreland, we got together with some neighbouring councils and developed a, um, a package of reforms to planning laws. Um, to ensure that things like water tanks and solar panels and, and uh, ratings were attributed to developments that we could assess them on an environmental standard and this um, environmental um, design element. Uh, it took us uh, a few years to develop, but it took us many more years to actually get it embedded into the planning scheme. Um, and then the minister held onto it for many years and eventually they did their own version. It was watered down, but at least something was implemented and it went into all the planning schemes across Victoria. This year at Moreland, um, we've just employed a staff member to look at what I would call sort of the second package of planning reforms to make developments even more sustainable. We're at the stage of getting partner councils to start the advocacy work to make sure that these changes um, do get implemented in planning laws. So there's going to be a whole new um, uh, level of uh, law reforms to make sure that our buildings are even better designed and are even more sustainable. But we need the political will to get it implemented. And it's not a Moreland specific. Um, it is a state specific. Um, it is a national specific um, reforms that we need. But in Victoria, Victorian local government, we're talking about the Victorian planning scheme, so we want it implemented across Victoria. Um, so we're on to that. So we're going to have to wrap it up. I'm sorry, I know there's a few questions out there we didn't get to. Please, um, I'm sure we can talk on the way out, but uh, it is 4.30. It is the end of the day. Um, thank you so much for the organisers. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you for everyone for attending and to our panellists. Have a lovely evening. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.